Welcome in. It's another edition of 10,000 Pitches, a podcast devoted to everything Minnesota soccer and beyond. My name is Jeremy Rushing. A little bit of a late show this week. We had a late start with the United game last night. Uh, I was lucky enough to be on the Epler of Aslunum postgame show. Uh, so we decided to uh, wait to record till Friday. Kind of gives our, give ourselves a chance to sleep on it. You know, go over our thoughts and feelings on Minnesota United's uh, departure from the MLS's back tournament uh, as they fell to Orlando City. Uh, three to one. But if you want to follow the show on the socials at 10K Pitches, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, make sure you subscribe on all the uh, all the podcast platforms that you are uh, are on. And then if your preferred platform allows you to leave a rating and review, please do that as well. And like I always say, uh, make it a legit review. Like if you have some constructive feedback for the podcast, you know that's great. Uh, if you think this is a great podcast, that's awesome too. Let me know what you think. Either way. Um, this week though on the show, I really wanted to focus not necessarily just on what happened on the field last night with Minnesota United, uh, again, losing to Orlando city three to one in the MLS's back semifinals, but a lot going on off the field, including an update on Minnesota United's academy situation. And of course the one guy to bring in to discuss that is none other than E Pluribus Lunum contributor, Steamboat Soccer founder, managing editor for the University of Missouri student newspaper, The Maneater. And did I cover that all, Eli? Did I, I think you got everything in there. It's becoming okay, a lot of His yeah. name is Eli Hoff. Eli, thank you so much once again for joining me. Yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be on once again. Always fun to, to talk some Minnesota United in whatever form it absolutely. is. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so you have become kind of the, the go-to guy when it comes to the latest news and updates on what's happening with Minnesota United's Academy. And we will get to that in just a few minutes. But first, I do want to touch on what happened last night in the semifinals of the MLS's back tournament as Minnesota United did fall to Orlando City 3-1. to The first time Orlando City has actually outright beat Minnesota United um, during both teams' tenures in MLS, the first time Adrian Heath has fallen to his former club. Um, you know, and really, uh, it's tough to look at this as, as a game that got away necessarily because of the performance of Nani. Uh, his two goals against Asani Dotson were, were Galazzo-type goals, highlight reel-type goals. Um, the first coming off an amazing over-the-top ball, and he really just out-muscled the smaller Dotson to that ball and was able to finish it. And then the second, uh, you know, Dotson did give him a little bit of space, but, I mean, he's a world-class striker, a world-class finisher, and he showed that with that curling ball in to make it 2-0 Orlando City. Um, so, Eli, my question to you is, looking at this, you, you look at the game from a very tactical perspective. Um, so I want to get your thoughts on Hassani Dotson's performance against Nani last night in terms of just Dotson's overall ability as a right back right now. Obviously, it wasn't ideal. Roman Metinier could have necessarily, you know, done more against Nani. But where Hassani Dotson is in his growth as a right back or as a, as a dual threat type player, you know, where where do you see his performance last night and how much more could he have done? Yeah, well, I think it's important to look at with both those Nani goals that, you know, it, there, are, there are two aspects to it. One is Nani being Nani and just being a, a ridiculously elite finisher, like you, like you mentioned, and that it, it's difficult for any player to really do a ton on either of those plays. But at the same time, you can look at it and you, you say, well, there are things that Sonny Dotson could have done in those situations. On the first goal, you know, you'd like to see him maybe body up on Nani a little bit more, maybe try to keep pace, you know, cheat and take a couple steps. Then on the second goal, that is what he did. He cheated, took a couple steps back just to try to beat Nani in that jump. That gave Nani all the space he needed to, to put a ridiculous finish in there. So it's sort of, you know, with a player like him, 
it's kind of a lose-lose scenario. Uh, he's, he's probably going to beat you off the dribble. If you give him space, he's probably going to use that to beat you anyway. So it, it's tough to be too harsh on Dotson. But at the same time, it was Dotson's job to shut Nani down. And so it's, it's kind of, you know, weighing that. I, I think tactically, he fits in fine at right back. Uh, you know, in, in the last game against the Quakes, Dotson looked just fine there. I think there were some people who, who are kind of in the camp of maybe he's even a little bit better defensively than Armand Metinier. I don't think I, I agree with that as much, but I think he's fine there. And, and part of what makes Dotson so valuable to Minnesota United is his versatility, that they can play him as a number eight, they can play him as a number six, they can play him as a right back, frankly, they can play him as a left back. You know, I mean, they could really throw him anywhere on the pitch and the, and the guy's going to do it and he's probably going to largely be fine. It, it was just a case of you have a guy who's not a natural fit at right back playing against a left winger who's just a stud. And we knew going into that game that those matchups on the wings, you know, Orlando's wingers versus Minnesota United's fullbacks, that those were going to be the matchups to watch. And that, that proved true. It was the, the matchup on Minnesota United's right, Orlando's left, that determined the course of the game. And it was just two, two situations of brilliance from Manny. I, I think just what it shows is, is that Hassani is still a, a young player, for one, who is, you know, those types of plays that are just those one-on-one scenarios that comes with experience with playing against guys like Nani. I have a feeling Dotson probably hasn't faced too many players of that caliber in his career, especially not as a right back. And so that was a very new situation and and that's difficult. So that comes with time. And and also he's more naturally a central midfielder, whether that's as a number six or number eight, that's another debate to have. So I think it just shows that he, he can do fine while he's out of position, but He's not a Roman Metinier. He's not the starter at right back in, and that showed. Definitely, definitely. I think we saw that size really matters when it comes mm-hmm. to that position too. Yeah, that's a good um, point. I think Roman Metinier could have could have really bullied Nani around a little bit more, uh, gotten him off the ball, gotten him a little more uncomfortable, or just his overall presence could have get, given Nani a little more something to think about. Where Nani was the bigger of the two in that matchup with Dotson, mm-hmm. he's, absolutely, he's all that him out muscling Dotson to get to that first ball, like I said. So um, you you hear a lot about size when it comes to the center back positions. You want a tall, you know. Uh, wide-shouldered, you know, guy, strong guy who can really go up and get those get those balls. And Dodson can go up and get those balls. He does have the the athletic ability to jump up, as we saw a couple times last night. His ability to win headers, but size also matters in the fullback position, in the outside back position. Um, and so that's why I think ideally Roman Metner is still your guy um, in that position. He's an MLS All Star. You know, he's an, he's a absolutely world-class caliber right back that's why you brought him in that's why you signed that extension but Hassani Dotson is a good alternative he's a not necessarily you know somebody you're you look at and you're like okay like I feel just as good about the situation than if Roman Metinier was on the field but as far as backup right backs in this league go uh, Dotson's pretty darn good um, he just mm-hmm. was matched up with one of MLS's best last night absolutely um Looking on the attacking front now for Minnesota United, that is, they, they earned a lot of set pieces last night and a lot of free kicks, a good amount of corners, but they just didn't have that same danger about them on the set pieces that we've seen so far in this season and in this tournament, uh, and specifically when crossing. Just 21% crossing accuracy for the game, which doesn't seem bad, but the only reason that their percentage was that high was due to the final 10 to 15 minutes when they were in full attack mode and actually making things happen uh, in terms of getting balls into the box uh, effectively. But they were sitting around 13, 14% crossing the entire match up to that point and just didn't, didn't have that same, that same feeling that they were, you know, as dangerous in the, in the set pieces as they have been. 
Well, and I think the way I kind of characterized, especially the first half, it, it was a vintage Minnesota United display. And normally when we say it's a vintage display, that sounds like a good thing. That's not a good thing with Minnesota United. Yeah. It, a lot of last night looked like the, the 2017, 18, even a little bit of 19 Minnesota United, where there's a lot of crossing that isn't producing a whole lot. Set pieces aren't creating anything particularly valuable. And there just doesn't look like a ton of a tactical identity. Now, that's very stark contrast to what we've seen in 2020 for Minnesota United, what we've seen in the MLS's back tournament. There's been, you know, some great crossings, some great set pieces, a really strong tactical identity. So that's why last night was so uncharacteristic and kind of weird for me to watch from that angle. What I think part of it is, I, I think Orlando City really, really prepared for Minnesota United and took that very, very seriously. You know, we saw Oscar Pereja uh, at the, the San Jose game as the one, you know, scout allowed to be there. Um, Again, I don't know how much he really took away from a vantage point of watching it in person. They're going to get a lot more off of tape regardless. But that shows that how much preparation went into this. And if I was an opposing coach who's playing Minnesota United, there are really three things I'd be looking to try to shut down. Minnesota United off the counter, Minnesota United off crosses, and Minnesota United on set pieces. And those things kind of contribute to each other. Uh, shutting them down off the counter is just kind of difficult. So I wouldn't worry about that. The two easiest things are going to be crosses and set pieces especially those set pieces and Orlando's been a good team against set pieces I've seen the stat floated out there I want to say they'd only conceded one set piece goal coming into this game I'm not certain of that but they've been good against set pieces and you know if, if a team's willing to take the time and watch every single one of Minnesota United set pieces you can figure out pretty quick what they're doing um, it, it's a great setup but the movement with creating a couple different levels with you know having a, a spot where they're going to concentrate. You know, they're hoping that young Gregus can put the ball in one spot and that all the runners will come to that spot and create a channel. It, it's, it's not that difficult to stop. You can figure out what Minnesota United does. And I, I think that's something that Orlando City made an emphasis of last night and put a stop to that. With crossing to, you look at uh, Joel Moutinho, at their left back against Ethan Finley. Finley wasn't able to squeeze off much quality stuff from that right wing. So when you shut down those wingers, that's a big thing, especially because Finley is going to be the more crossing heavy winger, you know, Robin Ludd, he prefers to cut in and play through ball, stuff like that. So by shutting down Finley and, and not having Ramon Met in there, who's such a good crosser, that limits that aspect of play. So I think it was just really good game plan from Orlando. And, and I think that showed in those two areas of the game, which are kind of, which have been the primary areas of attack for Minnesota United thus far in 2020. Something that we've seen from the Loons for much of their MLS tenure, but definitely over the last couple of years has been the outside in approach. You just mentioned that Orlando City did a good job of shutting down the wingers. And if you can shut down the outside for Minnesota United, it's going to be really tough for them to generate solid goal-scoring opportunities. And we saw that uh, play itself out last night, which is where Luis Samaria comes into play. He was brought in to kind of be that guy who can, who can make things happen up the middle, create his own shot, and really give this team kind of a multidimensional look when it comes to their attack. And we just really haven't seen that from him in this tournament. A lot of factors could play into that. We've gone over those at nauseum, so I'm not going to go over those right now. But, but we really see that without his quality and his pressure and his danger in the middle of the field, it is, tactically speaking, easier said than done to, to really hold Minnesota United at bay offensively if you can just shut down the wingers like Orlando City did last night. Absolutely. And I think it also shows how – important Kevin Molino is to this team as that central presence you know he floats around a lot he's not always playing as a straight up attacking centrally number 10 but the space that he creates in there and he, what makes him so great and I talked about this on the post game show last night is that 
he's so good with the ball as a dribbler and nobody else on Minnesota United is, is that great of a dribbler. Obviously, you know, Chase Gasper put on a little bit of a show last night, mm. but nobody else is the type of player who can pick the ball up and, you know, draw a foul at the end of a 30 yard run or, or maybe just create those opportunities. And what that does when you're that good of a dribbler, it, it sucks defensive players out of position. Cause you know, if you're a defensive player and you go to make a, a play on, on a guy with the ball, and you're going you're gonna to kind of ride him. You're going to follow him maybe 20 yards inside. And, and when a fullback pulls 20 yards inside, then suddenly there's a lot more space for that winger there that if the ball can cycle back out there, there's space. And, and that's what attacking in soccer is all about. It's all about creating space. And, and so Kevin Milliner just does that so, so well for both himself and his teammates. And, and the fact that he didn't start this game, that shows, you know, they, they went with the two-number-eight approach. And, and Ja'Cory Hayes had another pretty good game. Jan Gregus is obviously a great midfielder but they can't quite replicate what Kevin Molino brings. And Luis Maria does so well because he's great at finding space. Like he, he had a run to the back post that ended up, you know, I, I think he's, he slid for the ball and it was just, you know, a, a couple of feet in front of him. But it, you can watch from the aerial cam. You can watch the center back drift in and you can see Amaria literally like shift his run as soon as he sees that, shift his run immediately to the back post. And so he's so good at finding space. But when that space isn't always being created, that's where he starts to really not be involved. Uh, and, and that's not really a knock on him. That's just kind of the way he stylistically plays. It's worked in the past when there's space. But I think it shows how important the number 10 is to Minnesota United's system in offense. I think, and as good as Amaria is, it really shows how important Molina was to Amaria specifically yes. in terms of being able to create. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the front four, we already talked about Amaria. We already talked about Hayes, who, who has had a great tournament, who had a great tournament up to that point. But he just, for the first time in this tournament, he looked a little bit out of his element. A lot of that is attributed to what Orlando City did uh, in terms of just, uh, like, like we said, shutting down the outside and not really allowing Hayes to be much of a factor. Um, Loden Finley, like we said, pretty much neutralized both on the outside. Um, overall, when you look at Minnesota United, what could they have done differently tactically last night with what they had? If, if Molino wasn't fit enough to start, what could they have done with the 11 they had differently to create more, more chances, more quality chances, I should say? Because they had a ton of shots, but none of them were really on goal. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. And one is that, well, I just got done talking about how great Kevin Molino is for this system. They don't really need him. They got past the crew in the earthquakes without Kevin Molino seeing the field at all right mm -hmm. so it's possible for them to win in that 4-3-3 without Kevin Molino but what it what's been so good for Minnesota United especially in this tournament is their defensive block and in that defensive block I, I'll over explain it a little bit here hopefully just because it's such an important concept to understand with Minnesota United it's that when the other team has possession for a prolonged period of time so we're not talking uh, you know a a counter situation we're talking like building out of the back you know starting with a goal kick something like that where Minnesota United is going to fully set up defensively. Usually they've done that in a 4-4-2. That's what they do when they're in the quote-unquote 4-2-3-1 shape. It's more of a 4-4-2. Uh, sometimes it's the 4-3-3 that we've seen without Kevin Molino in there. But it stays so compact. They'll sometimes fit all 11 players in the space of about 20, 25 yards, which is really, really tight. You know, you think a soccer field is, you know, over 100 yards long I don't remember the exact number it varies which is weird about soccer but they fit in such a tight space and stay so compact and part of what that is the players don't move out of position they don't get sucked out for those dribblers and stuff like that and that's why Minnesota United is such a good defensive team because they just restrict space they pack so many players in there that there just isn't space for other teams to pass through or dribble through that wasn't the case last night 
the, the defensive block was playing a really, really high, really, really loose. They were pressing at times, which was something that we've barely seen from Minnesota United and was good because when you press in soccer, you know, your line gets higher and it, it becomes easier to bypass defenders. So, you know, if you're playing a 4-3-3 and you tell your front three to press, all it takes is one pass, one really short, simple pass, and they've played through three defenders already, right? If you tell, you know, your front six to press, all of a sudden two passes and you're onto the back four already. And, and that's what we've seen from Orlando. They're such a good passing team that they can be really, really direct and decisive at playing through lines. And it was actually, it was on the second goal that Orlando City scored. Minnesota United pressed. And what that did, that, that forced the back four into those one-on-one situations like Dotson versus Nani, which is not a favorable matchup. It, it forced those situations really, really early in the possession. And then they get the ball to Nani. He's one-on-one right away. And you saw what happened. It was a fantastic goal. And again, it's a fantastic goal, but there are things in the buildup that contribute to that. And I don't know, you know, maybe Minnesota United saw something that they were like, Adrian Heath was like, the, the press is what we want to do. This is how we want to stop Orlando City. And, and there's, there's some logic behind that because Orlando City is such a good passing team that's had some really, really great buildup. You know, maybe you, you press and you try to disrupt that a little bit earlier. I, I don't think Minnesota United is a great pressing team. I don't look at Robin Lloyd, Ethan Finley, and Luis Amaria and say, these guys are going to win Minnesota United the ball, you know, in the attacking third, stuff like that. Ozzy Alonso is great, you know, but even Jokori Hayes, Jan Gregush, I don't look at them and say, these guys are, are going to win the ball frequently when they're up pressing. Uh, I, I would much rather see them in that defensive block and just restrict space because that's what worked against the crew. They restricted the space. They put they kind of assigned Dotson to just shut down Darlington Nagby, which is a little bit different, but it worked. You know, you can you can kind of give or take there. But again, there was just that that pressing I didn't really understand for Minnesota United, and I think it was to their detriment uh, when it played in there. And, and it was a tactical variation, which I, I don't think was necessary uh, last night. I, I, that will probably be the big thing for me. I think if they had stayed a lot more compact, I don't think you would have – I mean, Nani would have still been Nani, right? If you got him the ball one-on-one with Dotson, he probably still would have made things happen. I just – I think it would have been a lot more difficult to get the ball to him in that scenario. I look at that decision to press, and I find it similar to, like, the ideology that teams use against LAFC. Mm-hmm. You almost have to press a team like LAFC because if you if you sit back and you allow Rossi and you allow – uh, you know, v- Vela when he's in, if you allow Wright Phillips to just have that space to work, you are going to get eaten alive. And I feel like maybe Adrian Heath, if you want to call it an overcorrection, you can, but I feel like he was kind of applying that same logic to Nani uh, in terms of maybe, uh, you know, taking him out of the picture before they can even, you know, get a solid scoring chance. Obviously you're taking a risk when you do that because if Nani gets in behind or, you know, if they make the, the passes that they need to make, then you're exposed as we saw last night. But to me, the similarity was there in terms of at least that logic to high press to almost uh, eliminate that attack from the source. Absolutely. And I think there's an element of, of maybe that I think part of that, you know, they, they knew going in that that Dotson-Nani matchup was not a favorable matchup for Minnesota United. You know, it, Dotson was always going to be the underdog in that. And while Minnesota United loves being the underdogs, that's not a good spot to be an underdog yeah. in. And, and so I think the, the game plan was probably we want to minimize that matchup being a factor, right? Try to, you know, keep them from even giving Nani the ball. And, and that's where that pressure comes in, right? You, you try to interfere with that distribution so that it doesn't even get to Nani in the first place. And so I do see the logic behind that. But I also, even more, I subscribe to the logic just generally in soccer that center backs aren't used as effectively as they should be for distribution, right? We don't see a ton of center backs who are really, really great on the ball. 
So to me, if, if I'm a team in a defensive block and they're passing the ball around in their own half between their center backs, they can do that for 45 minutes. And it's not a problem because they're not a threat. They're just going to keep passing it back and forth there. I would much rather focus on, you know, parking 10 guys back to deal with the rest of their offense. And so I'm not a huge fan of, of pressure like Minnesota United applied it. But at the same time, I, I do see the, the kind of logic in, in trying to, to get on the front foot defensively and, and just keep the ball away from those guys like Nani and even Chris Mueller on the right side there and just make that front four for Orlando a non-factor. Yeah, I think if you, you have a healthy Romain Metinair, um and a healthy Aquapara, I think you don't see Minnesota United do that. Um, I, I would have fully agree. And that's their defensive identity, right? They are going to they're going to press pressure you while not pressing, right? We saw we yep. saw it a couple times against San Jose and early in this tournament where they sit back, but the teams, whoever it is, Columbus, Colorado, whoever, is passing the ball around, and you just slowly notice that they're getting closer and closer to the midline as they do that because that internal pressure is causing them to to back up and they're not able to break that barrier that Minnesota United puts up. That's more of their identity. So, um, you know, I see Adrian Heath's decision-making there as, you know, I, I'm, I agree with you, Eli. I think he should have trusted who he had on the field to kind of keep that same defensive identity. Uh, but when you have, you lose arguably your two best defenders, you know, sometimes you do have to adjust. And I think Adrian, Heath just tried and it didn't really work last night. Exactly. Um, you had mentioned a lot of previous Minnesota United coming out in this game. And I noticed that too, as I, as I put it, the, the boogeyman was back under the bed, so to speak, uh, in terms of, in terms of what we saw from Minnesota United last night. Um, but looking ahead to whatever season happens now, post the MLS's back tournament, I saw that there was a report that FC Dallas and Nashville, two of the teams that weren't able to compete in the MLS's back tournament, are going to play a couple games next week. I have not done enough research to know if those games are actually going to count for the MLS season or if they're just tune-up friendlies to get ready for, for the season, but they're both going to be in Nashville, I believe, uh, Wednesday, Saturday next week. Um, so that's going to be sort of the, the kickoff, I guess, to whatever season happens. I think August 27th was their target actual start date for the season. Uh, but where, you know, as, as it stands right now, Minnesota United is second place in the West, right behind Sporting Kansas City. They're third place in the Supporter Shield race. They, they've looked really good. I mean, they have had, uh, you know, aside from last night, uh, they have really had a great start to the season. Um, and I think you don't necessarily have to even have to look at last night as a step back. Yes, there's a lot of things they could have improved upon, but I mean, Orlando City's in the MLS's back final. I don't necessarily think that's that's a uh, you know just a uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but I don't necessarily think it's it's one of those things that wasn't necessarily earned by Orlando City. I think they played excellent in this tournament so far. But when you look at the rest of this tournament. You know, maybe we get Ico Parra back. Maybe we don't. A lot of unknown as far as the personnel that we'll have. Uh, Bakayi Debasi is coming in and he'll, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, be ready for whatever season happens moving forward. But where do you see Minnesota United as they rank now, both in the Western Conference and in the league, as we move forward to now games that actually matter in terms of points again? Yeah, well, quick, a couple notes on what you just said. Uh, with those Nashville Dallas games, it is my understanding that they will count towards okay. the regular season standings. I think the logic is that because those teams missed the group stage games that counted, they're now three games behind everyone. So I think they're just going to have to play those three. Yeah. Uh, so that's my understanding there. Um, and, and as far as last night, like being a bad loss, it really isn't. Because as you mentioned, Orlando's into the final now. They've played fantastically. There's no shame in losing to them. And there's really no shame when you're out. Ike Parra, Roman Metinier, and Kevin Molino 
who are among the three most important people to this team. Mm-hmm. So I, I, there's no shame in losing to Orlando last night. But going forward, I, I think you have to expect Minnesota United to continue to be a top team in MLS. They've asserted that in terms of what the, the table looks like right now and, and making that semifinal run in this tournament that they're no longer the underdogs. They're now one of the top teams. Are they LAFC? No, they're not LAFC. But they're still, you know, I put them on par with Sporting Kansas City, the Columbus crew, you know, maybe even Portland Timbers, though. They, Minnesota United beat the Timbers so, so handily in March that I, I don't know about that comparison. And so the expectation is that this team's going to come out and, and not just make the playoffs, but make the playoffs resoundingly, maybe even, you know, win a couple games in there and make a little run at MLS Cup. As far as what things are going to look like, obviously the, the big question is going to be how is MLS going to actually play all of these games? Because we've seen this home market approach not work. It's not working in USL. There are teams with positive cases. There are games being missed. It's really not working in Major League Baseball. It's really not working in there. Can MLS be any different? I, I'm not suggesting another bubble. I think that's unfair to the players. Yeah. But the bubble approach you know, the bubble approach is proven to, to largely work now. So it's a big risk. Part of that, if slash when these, these games do happen, I'll be interested to see how much home field advantage there is. Because in MLS, there is a lot of home field advantage. And, and how much is that when travel preps isn't happening as much, you know? I, I don't know this for sure, but I can't imagine MLS is going to be scheduling, you know, the Red Bulls against LAFC because I don't think they want that kind of travel happening. Mm-hmm. So a little bit shorter distances, no fans or very limited fans. What's that look like for home field advantage? I, I don't know. That'll be interesting. I think Minnesota United needs to just stay on brand with that approach. We've seen, again, they're a fairly known quantity in what they're going to do most games with that low block, it hitting off the counter and being good at set pieces. That's worked every game they've done that. They deviated from it a little bit against Orlando and it didn't work. So I, I would say hopefully Adrian Heath sticks with his approach just kind of plug in personnel coming back if that's Ike Opara, uh, you know, if that's Debasi, if that's maybe Reynoso coming in. Uh, but I, I don't think anything drastic needs to change. I think Minnesota United comes out of this MLS's back tournament with some validation of, look, we have a tactical identity, which hasn't always been there in years past. And, and we're going to go forward with that, going to kind of impose themselves on other teams, even if that's imposing themselves via a sort of passive style. It's still something that they can kind of force other teams to play they want to play the way they want to play. To your point about home field advantage, we see the I think the biggest um, indicator on what home field is going to look is going to look like here in Minnesota uh, as far as soccer goes has been what the St. Paul Saints have done. They are allowing fans in in the stadium uh, at a very very limited capacity but they, they're starting to do that. So it's happening here in the Twin Cities. So honestly, when you're talking about, you know, what home games at Allianz Field could potentially look like for Minnesota United, I have no reason to believe that they wouldn't necessarily take that same approach. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we'll see a situation where it's going to be behind closed doors. Um, so you will have uh, fans in the stands. Now, whether or not that's enough of a supporter section to really make a solid difference in the match and bring the energy, you know, that's, that's um, who's to say right now. But – it's going to be something and it's going to be a difference from what we've seen uh, so far, you know, obviously in the MLS's back tournament, but you, you, you offer some thoughts on the league's plan overall. And yes, USL and major league baseball, both are not, uh, are not necessarily thriving uh, in their approaches. Uh, but to that point, MLS has now been able to sit back and look at what they've done 
And the MLB has had to make some tweaks in terms of how strict they are on the teams and the players who are actually traveling and what they can do and stuff like that. Um, so I, you know, maybe this is the optimist in me here, but I think that MLS could have a better, uh, could, could have an advantage in terms of their ability to actually see this season through however it looks because they were able to see what didn't work necessarily with USL and MLB. And I think that's, that's more than just the travel. I think it has a lot to do with players' habits and what they do and how they abide by the guidelines that have been set by the leagues. And part of that, too, it's not just the players. It's the technical staff or essential yeah. staff who are, who are coming in contact, you know, the people who are part of the traveling parties and being tested because I, I think kind of the natural inclination is always oh, see an outbreak in, in whatever team and whatever sport. We assume it's the players. No, it, it could be, you know, a, a technical staff member. I think that was what happened with the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I'm not for sure on that, but I think it was – or Marlins. One of the MLB outbreaks, I think, was a staff member uh, that they traced it to. And, and so – it's important that you have players and staff buy into this. Um, and that's obviously a, a difficult thing because it, it takes pretty much a hundred percent buy in. You know, this isn't, we can have 10 of our starting 11 really, really, you know, follow these this social distancing guidelines, not really go anywhere, you know, not go out to bars and restaurants. I mean, all it takes is, is one player or one staff member. And then suddenly, you know, not just one, but maybe even two teams are in jeopardy. And, and I think, Probably, and, and maybe it's cynical to think this, but the reality is probably that with any restart plan that MLS does, there are going to be positive cases, yeah. right? There's probably going to be an outbreak or two in teams. And what, what you have to view is, is, is that worth it? And, and what's the threshold where it isn't worth it, right? I think a lot of people subscribe to the logic of anytime anybody's health and safety and well-being is in danger, you know, that's not worth it. And so, you know, one positive case isn't worth it. Um, I have a feeling the the pocketbooks of, of MLS and these teams are going to, you know, it's, it's going to be a little bit higher threshold there before they say, we don't, we don't do this. And there are going to be games that have to be postponed. So it's going to be, there are going to be headaches for MLS to say, okay, how do we handle cancel games? How do we handle postponing games? How do we handle a discipline, right? If, if there is a group of players or staff members who, go out and, and infect the team, right? You know, cause games to be postponed. Do you have teams forfeit, stuff like that? It's just, it's, it's going to create headaches, but there isn't a perfect solution to this besides a bubble. And, and that's just not realistic to do long-term. You know, it, it works for these tournaments. It works for the NBA to do a, a few, you know, play in qualifying games, whatever you want to call them, and then a playoffs. I guess the NBA's or WNBA is doing their full season, um, which is obviously a little bit longer-term approach. But I, I think it's, it's, fully unreasonable to say to MLS players, yeah, you know, go have three weeks in your home market and then you're coming back to a bubble. That's just unfair to them. There has to be a return to home markets. I just don't know how you do that with a hundred percent safety and, and all that stuff. But to your point with fans too, that'll certainly be interesting to see. I, I think it'll be up to teams to determine what's, what's safe in regards to local health stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that's the approach USL is doing. And so, you know, I cover St. Louis FC in the USL and they're having 25% capacity at their stadiums. Um, and I, I don't know, it, it looks a little bit more full in the stands than maybe I would feel comfortable with. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, all the answers are, you know, a little bit less than 20,000 capacity. So, you know, say 25%, that's 5,000 people. Uh, you probably do a, a little bit less than that just because, you know, the wonder wall is not exactly geared for social distancing at all. Uh, so maybe, you know, you're not really letting anybody back there. Um, but, you know, 
would you be able to fit, you know, 2,000 fans in Allianz? I think you'd be able to get 2,000 fans in there and, and space them out yeah. a very good distance. And I'm no epidemiologist or public health expert, but I feel like, you know, that's a fairly safe approach. And again, you're not requiring fans to go here. I, I, there will be a lot of fans who don't feel comfortable going to these games, right? But there will also be fans who are willing to pay, t- to, you know, pay admission to go see these games. And, and that will be interesting to see. Um, I, obviously, I, I trust Minnesota United, the, the ownership, the Allianz field, all that stuff to be very, very safe and very, very cautious with who or how many people they're letting in to, to stadiums. Um, you know, obviously, I, I won't be around here, but I hope they let media members in, cover things on site once again, even if availability is virtual. Um, but, you know, safety has to be the priority here. And I just, I don't see a scenario where things go 100% perfectly for any any league that's playing in the home market model right now. You know, it'll be interesting to see how the schedule looks too. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking three games a week, two games a week. Uh, they're going to have to leave room, like you said, for postponed games, canceled, you know, the rescheduled games, things like that uh, on the back end or, or have a, a, enough of an open schedule where you can fit that in between games if you need to. Um, but they said an 18 game regular season, I believe, Eli, is that? I, I, that sounds like the right number for it. Yeah, I, I believe you're right there. Yeah, between between August twenty second and the end of beginning of December, I think, as I said, when when ML- it goes, yeah, it goes pretty late. So uh, we'll see how that that whole that whole thing looks uh, once we get that more uh, more detailed schedule from the league. Which now that the MLS is back, tournament you have the final on Tuesday. So I would think either leading up to that or sometime soon after, we should you know get an actual schedule in terms of how that's yeah. Going. Yeah, well, I've seen some reports of just like one off games as people kind of find things out, but. Certainly, I think it, there has to be so much planning that goes into this that I, I think you, you kind of hope that the schedule is at least out there internally because I, I would fully I, I want to say it's going to be a requirement that teams charter flights. I, I certainly hope they are chartering flights for all this travel or, or taking buses, but th- there's a lot of planning that does have to go into making sure this comes off as, as well as it can. And so it, the sooner these things can come out and start falling in place, certainly the better. And I, I have seen this question come out on Twitter, so I think we should clarify. This is not a situation where the Players Association and the league need to come back to the table and agree upon this, right? This is a continuation of the 2020 season as it was pre-tournament. So this falls right back into that CBA. Yep. And, and I, I haven't heard or seen anything from the MLS Players Association on, on what this restart's going to look like. Um, obviously, they've, they've been a vocal group for rightfully so. So if, if things aren't up to the standard that it needs to be, I imagine we will see or hear something about it. Um, just because, you know, they're, as a group, they're, they're very on top of things in, in making sure that conditions are, are as safe as they need to be for players to do this. Definitely. All right, let's switch gears here and talk, to, uh, talk about some off-field topics. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, Eli, you have become really the, the authority or the go-to guy on, on the process of this whole academy situation with Minnesota United. From, uh, from it basically being disbanded, uh, in June um, to you know, not really look, knowing what it's going to look like. And now all of a sudden we have a new part-time academy model that Minnesota United has unveiled or um, that, that we've gotten information on. And theoretically, this would allow the players within that academy to train and play a majority of the time with their clubs, but use the United, use the United Academy as more of a, a supplemental training structure. Is that kind of a, a good way of summarizing it? 
Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. And, and one thing to just say, you know, we're recording this early afternoon on Friday. There's a meeting taking place uh, later tonight between Manny Lagos and Academy parents. Um, obviously, I'll have an update out after that over, over what's said in there um, and, and what parents kind of take away how they feel. Uh, but so, you know, there's a chance that some of the specifics could certainly be, be changing and probably are changing. Uh, so there'll be, you know, by the time you guys are listening to this podcast, there will probably be more specific uh, information out there. But you're right, basically supplemental is kind of the, the best way to describe it. And, and there are a couple different ways you can look at this model. And, and the way I've, I've I talked to, to several people who are leaders with local youth soccer clubs, and, and they kind of have mixed opinions on it. Some are like, we're fine with this because it means we get our players back, right? Because these are, you know, some, some top level elite level kids who are now going to be playing for these, these local soccer clubs. So they're happy with that, especially because Minnesota United, you know, one, one uh, official said, you know, the word he used was decimated when Minnesota United launched their academy. They just poached all these top players, which that's the expectation for Minnesota United, but it, it wasn't necessarily good for these local clubs. So getting those players back will be something in advantage. That said, there aren't a ton of specifics out there right now over how players are really going to be joining the Minnesota United Academy. You know, it, it sounds like it's going to be call-ups, but it, how is that going to work? How often are these players going to be called away? What are they going to miss in terms of their, their local club stuff? And the, the bottom line is that Minnesota United doesn't want to really pay for an academy. That, that's been abundantly clear at this point, that it's just not something that that this ownership group or front office or whoever you want to place the blame on sees a whole lot of value in. And, you know, that's, that's probably a separate issue for people to, to have, have beef with of, you know, should this team value an academy or should they not, right? The, the reality is that they don't really place a ton of value in there. And, and so what this does, it's a model that allows them to spend very little, invest very little in academy, but still keep something up to meet these MLS standards to compete, to have some players developed. Now, there's also an element of talent identification at ages, you know, 13 to 16 is so, so difficult. I, I you know, just because a, a player's good at 13, you know, at, at age 13, you've got players who are, you know, have already hit puberty. You've got players who haven't even started. Like there can be such a disparity between ability at this age. So just because a guy is lighting up a U13 game or a girl's lighting up a U13 game is no indication of what they're going to be when they're 21, 22, if they're going to be MLS or NWSL quality players. So in a sense, it's just, it's all a little bit ridiculous to have these 13 year olds on such an elite training track. Now at the, you know, U16, U17 level, that's where you start, it gets a little bit more accurate. You can start telling who's going to be a legit prospect, who should you invest in. So that's where, you know, adding, it sounds like they're going to have a, a little bit more of a conventional academy structure right around that U17 mark. And, and that would obviously be better as far as that thing goes. Um, but so there's an element of maybe it's better to have you know, 80 to 100, 13 and 14 year olds in the mix instead of like 20 to 30, right? Just from that talent identification standpoint. And are you investing a lot of money in a 13 or 14 year old who within, you know, five years is, is I don't want to say flamed out as a soccer player, but just isn't going to realize that potential that you see then. So there's an element of that as well. But then there are concerns that I've seen from a lot of fans or, or people who follow youth soccer and other MLS markets of, how are these kind of discovery rights and, and that sort of territorial rights going to go here? You know, it shouldn't Minnesota United be allowed to have a pool of 80 players in a given age group that, you know, they, they quote unquote claim, whereas other teams are, are only having, you know, maybe 30 that they're investing a lot more in. Again, that's a sort of specifics thing that I just, I, I don't have an answer on at this point. Um, again, hopefully a, a lot of 
things will get cleared up with that Lagos meeting. Uh, you know, in which case, again, I'll have something that I encourage you to, uh, all of you listening to, to go read whatever comes out of that meeting, because uh, we'll know a lot more. But there are still certainly some, some questions to be asked and a debate to be had. Talking about player identification and, and, and pooling, uh, it's hard to imagine that Minnesota United, or, or they're not, they're flat out not going to have their pick of the litter when it comes to who they're going to bring on to these academies, especially considering that they now have competition within their own city with Minneapolis City unveiling their futures program, which is a hyper-local, hyper-competitive development U20 model that they are uh, unveiling, which will allow for competition in a futures league, which is basically games within the academy itself. No, mm -hmm. no travel, if very little. Um, it's, it's a lot more affordable than a lot of, uh, you know, comparable, um, comparable organizations uh, that, that follow that same model. Um, so if you're a parent or if you're a kid, uh, who's playing for a club and you have Minnesota United come to you, but you also have, you know, Minneapolis city come to you and, and you're a club coach, as you mentioned, you know, who's to know how, how many times these players are going to be called away for, for Academy duty with Minnesota United or how long they're going to be gone or you know, how inconvenient that timing could potentially be. We're on the other side, Minneapolis city. And I was on their call with club coaches and, and local influencers the other, the other night, they are working very, very closely with these clubs to make it as, as convenient and as, uh, as, an, as much of a, like an accommodating experience as possible for both the club and the player. So if you're a parent kind of choosing which one you're going to send your kid to when you have these two really high-level options, it almost seems like Minneapolis City would be, would be at least in my opinion, the, the, the choice of the two just because of the convenience factor. Well, and I think you're right in saying that in, in the futures program, I, I unfortunately missed the, the webinar the other night, uh, but I'll be talking to some of their folks in the next few days just to, to have something out about that. And you're absolutely right that they're going to be in, in close competition because there are some very, very striking similarities between what Minnesota United is planning and what Minneapolis City has it, you know, already announced, already is implementing, and, and you know, we'll, be, we'll be getting up and rolling here soon. And I think that's because it's an approach that, that could work here. Again, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's pretty unprecedented in, in MLS um, and in this market. But it will be interesting to see what the relationship, even between Minnesota United and Minneapolis City, looks like. You know, they'll be taking similar approaches here in that basically it's sort of creating a, a national team of local players and that you know, we want to get around and, and watch as many players as we can, scout these players, and then bring in the best ones, kind of call them up. It will be very interesting to see how that approach works for both of them. And, and I think you bring up a, a good point there, Jeremy, of what parents are going to choose and then what these players are going to choose. Because I, like, I know for at least 47 players who have found different destinations from Minnesota United, and that's not local clubs, that's, you know, Shattuck St. Mary's, that's Minnesota Thunder Academy, that's Sporting Kansas City. You know, some have gone, FC Barcelona runs uh, an academy in Arizona. Two players have gone there. Uh, one's, one or two is out in Portland. You know, one went to Cincinnati. Um, so there are players who have already left this system and aren't going to be coming back. And that's something I've, I've talked to a lot of families about. There are some who are just, you know, feel offended and, and mad about this whole academy situation. And they're like, we're done. Minnesota United blew their chance. We're never coming back. There are others, and that's a lot of those who, who maybe traveled to the Twin Cities to come to this academy or moved to Minnesota for this academy. Some of the, the players and families who are a little bit younger, a little bit more local, 
are willing to give Minnesota United a second chance uh, and would maybe, you know, be willing to, to play for a club team and then join the Loons every once in a while. Or I think they would also look at Minneapolis City's approach and say, here's what we're doing here because, you know, Minneapolis City's done such a good job of advertising themselves and getting invested with some of these local soccer clubs and stuff. Uh, from, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time covering NPSL and getting out to some of those games. Uh, you know, Minneapolis City spent a year playing at Osseo High School, where I, I graduated from a couple of years ago. And so I was able to make it out to some of those games. And they're always having a, a local club there with ball kids, stuff like that. You know, those are, in a sense, marketing relationships, but also just relationships to have down the road as far as yeah. now I, I'm sure when, if Minneapolis City, you know, goes calling to a club like Maplebrook or a club like Fusion and says, hey, you guys know who we are, you know, here's this program we're rolling out here's all these specifics I, I think there's an appeal to that and and at the same time you know there isn't the greatest relationship between Minnesota United and some of these DOCs some of these local club um, officials you know that's been worn thin because of the whole dynamic of you know MLS is telling Minnesota United things and and those are changing and then what Minnesota United is telling these local clubs that's changing and and you know one one uh, director of coaching told me He's like, you know, we'd have a meeting with Manny Lagos one day and then the next day there'd be a report in Soccer America or something that we'd run at E-Player Basudum that said the complete opposite. And so sometimes the communication just, just is frustrating. There are, there are some burned bridges here. There's a lot of frustration on a lot of sides. And so going forward, I would certainly expect Minneapolis City to become a force in local soccer development for sure. And, and that Futures program, just it looks great. Like it, it really does. So. Yeah, and just one thing to note from that call, uh, Adam Pribble, the technical director for uh, Minneapolis City, was asked, you know, explicitly about, you know, how they view Minnesota United's academy and, and what that relationship is going to look like. And he said that they've actually had sit-down conversations with representatives from Minnesota United. And apparently there is a plan to at least have some sort of collaborative relationship. Um, you know, there are, probably will be situations where Minnesota United's so scouting a kid or they have a kid and they think, okay, maybe he would fit better with Minneapolis city and vice versa. So I could see that happening, but I can't envision a scenario where a kid's going to have the time or the resources to play both. Uh, no, I, I would, and I would, I, this is purely speculation, but I would imagine if a player is going to accept a, a quote unquote call up or, or be involved with the Minnesota United Academy, that, that there might be some sort of kind of non-compete, situation that says you know hey you can't go play for Minneapolis City you know yeah you can go play for your local club we encourage you to go play for your local club but you know in the same sense that they wouldn't want a player playing for Minnesota United in, in Sporting Kansas City or Chicago Fire or Shattuck or Minnesota Thunder you know it might be also you know hey you, you can't go play for the futures uh, and again that's pure speculation but um, I, I would imagine there's something like that and I would also imagine that Minnesota United is, is going to scout the futures program because it's, it's yeah. going to be a great program. There are going to be some really great players involved there in a nice setup. Uh, in fact, if, if they didn't scout that, I think it would be concerning. So it, that relationship will, will be important, especially for Minnesota United. Uh, you know, again, I, I don't know the specifics of, of either program, so it would be wrong for me to speculate too much, but I have a feeling the Loons will be taking a look at what Minneapolis City does. Definitely, if they haven't already. Um, yeah, exactly. So you mentioned the Zoom call between Manny Lagos and the parents. It's set for later today. Um, so if you're listening to this on Saturday or later, uh, there's going to be an update over at epluribuslunum.com, most likely, from Eli on how that went down. Uh, how do you, if you're Manny Lagos, after your initial call with these parents, letting them know their kids will basically have to look for playing opportunities elsewhere, 
after sending out an email saying in 10 to 14 days, there'll be exciting news on the Academy's future. And now we're almost four weeks from that uh, to now where this call is going to happen finally tonight. How do you expect to sit in front of these parents, I mean, virtually, obviously, and have all this information be well received and expect any respect or you know, benefit of the doubt from these parents? Yeah, well, I, I'll say this. I certainly wouldn't want to be Manny Lagos in this situation. Um, and, and I'm also not sure exactly to what degree the blame falls on him, because again, it sounds like there have been some mixed messages from MLS and that also just this front office and ownership group isn't really willing to invest in the academy. So obviously that puts, that puts Manny in, in a tough situation. I don't envy him by any means, but it is his responsibility. You know, to, he's the chief soccer officer. Um, whatever that means, the academy falls under it. And so you know, he, he has to be the one kind of taking responsibility here. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, it will be interesting to hear what happens in the, in the Zoom call tonight. I, I know after the, the first Zoom meeting, that was kind of the, hey, the academy's basically going away one. Um, obviously a lot of very unhappy parents and, and it sounded like not a whole lot of information came out of that. It was a lot of the kind of, you know, not answers, you know, Jeremy, you know, as well as I do, you know, you could ask me these questions and I could just rattle off a bunch of cliches. It sort of sounded like it was that type of vibe. Um, I, I don't think parents will tolerate that. I think, you know, there's, there's a very low level of tolerance for what Minnesota United is doing. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of parents here uh, we, we reached a point where after about three weeks of uh, no, no update in that 10 to 14 day window where, you know, parents were coming to me asking for updates and, and I was having to tell them, you know, unfortunately, I don't have anything I can tell you at this point. Like when I have a story, you'll see it. Um, but the, the, they're very fed up with that lack of communication that they found out about the Academy News from Jeff Reeder over at The Athletic, who's also been great on this, that they're finding out, you know, about things from the media and, and for any organization at any level, that's obviously not something you want to do. You know, I, I'm trying to think of a, a good metaphor here, but you know, you, you wouldn't want to find out that your house is on the market because you saw the listing online, right? It's that sort of thing. Uh, that's probably a poor metaphor. That just popped in my mind. I don't know. If if but, you weren't trying to sell your house, it would be hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a poor metaphor. <laughs> um, I'll think of a better one at some point and tweet you it. You wouldn't want to find out you're being evicted by finding the listing for your house online. There you go. There we go. That's, that's a good example. Um, so, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing um, where I think a lot of parents are frustrated. But again, there are, other, there are families who, who are still willing to give Minnesota United a, another shot because at the end of the day, it's still an MLS Club Academy in the Twin Cities market. The, there were zero, I've heard zero complaints, zero bad things about any of these coaches. It, it sounds like every single coach who, who these you know, players and families worked with were just fantastic and have even been fantastic since this um, elimination, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But it's more just been with that leadership. So I, I think it, it falls on Manny to, to pitch this and convince families to come back because they have a lot of reasons to leave, right? They can get, you know, if, if they're after the MLS or elite level training, they can get that at Kansas City or at Shattuck, or even Minnesota Thunder Academy, which competes outside that MLS setup, but it offers really, really great stuff. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can still play at a high level with these youth soccer clubs. You know, the Maple Brook, Salvos, you know, St. Paul Blackhawks, Fusion, I'm, I'm forgetting some, but the, those top level clubs are still great places to learn how to play soccer. They have really, really talented soccer staffs. I, I wrote about how Salvo, uh, you know, it, it sounded like the expectation for them was that they would be uh, in, in that, um, MLS Elite Development League, you know, a lot of other clubs expected them to get in there because they have, you know, um, Carl Craig, Minnesota United, former head coach on there. They have Andy Seidel, who, who was one of the uh, 
you know, academy coaches like, oh, they have Brian Coleman, you know, brother Brent Coleman, former Minnesota United player on staff. They're like, they've got a really, really solid system going. So there's, there's good youth soccer to be had outside of Minnesota United. But they're also, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know, I was, I didn't play soccer as a kid. I, I played football and baseball. But, you know, if I, I know there's no academy set up, but if you had told me at, at age 13 that I could, you know, play for the Minnesota Vikings as a U13 player, my gosh, I would have done it no matter what was going on there. Absolutely. You know, I would have been all over it. So I think there will still be families and players that come back. There will also be some that leave. It's just, it's, it'll be interesting to see what those numbers look like and, and what that pitch has to look like from the club. Yeah, and again, more information on that will uh, come through over the weekend over at apluribuslunum.com from Eli. So definitely bookmark that and go check it out. Um, really quickly here, because we've been talking for almost an hour. Uh, so oh, I, want get, I want to get you back to your day, Eli. Uh, <laughs> I want to finish up here by just talking about the Bukayi Devasi signing. Uh, this is the first kind of post-COVID um, addition for Minnesota United, uh, acquired from French League One, now technically League Two because they were just relegated. Uh, but he played for Amiens SC. Uh, spent four years there, tallied nine goals, four assists. He's a left-back, center-back combo. Uh, really a, f- a flex piece on that back line. Um, where do you think he fits best with this team, honestly, Eli? I, there's not much tape to be had on him, but it sounds like he can play both at a pretty high level. Sounds like a, a vast majority of his experience comes as a center-back, but he can play on the outside. Um, do you see him more in the middle, or does he fit more on the uh, maybe on the left? Uh, is he a starter or depth piece? You know, What are your initial – uh, reactions. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned the lack of tape, and, and that's what's been frustrating for me as someone who, when we get a signing, likes to be able to go in and maybe watch a couple of ma- matches or at least just a, a crappy YouTube highlight edit. You know, yeah. I, I can't find anything on Devasi. I've frankly got no idea how he actually plays uh, outside of the fact that he played primarily uh, as a center back in France. You know, he still got minutes, still got starts as a left back there, but he was, he was definitely a center back more uh, than he was a fullback. That said, Center back is a really crowded and really strong position for Minnesota United right now. Mm-hmm. In, in this MLS is back tournament, uh, we didn't talk about this earlier, but, but Michael Boxall and, and Jose Aja have been fantastic. Just so, so good. Yeah. And, and you add, you know, Eichel Parra, whether or not he'll come back for the season restart, okay, but, you know, he, he's long-term, he's, he's with Minnesota United. Mm-hmm. He's the MLS defender of the year. You know, he'll probably replace Aja in there. Uh, that's a fantastic starting three you know, uh, to, to kind of rotate between, you know, Brent Coleman, while well, we haven't seen him in, in a very long time now. Um, you know, he's a great option too. So there's, there's four really solid center backs right there. Do you need to add Debassi? I, you know, I, I don't think you need to sign another fifth, uh, fifth center back. Even if he's projected to be a starter, I think you're fine with Opara and Boxall and Aha as that third guy. If I was in charge of, of making moves for this team, I think left back is the spot where I would look to make a move. That's not a knock on Chase Gasper. He's played fine. I'm just I'm 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 not certain on him. You know, he he's he's fast enough, but he's just he lacks that that fallback elite type speed that especially we see from Roman Metner. You know, Chase he plays super physically, which is fun. Like that's really fun to watch as a as a physical type left back. But I'm not sure it's what the team needs all the time. So if the bossy can bring some pace out on that left side. Um, the only comparison I've seen was from Adrian Heath in the press release, likening him to Roman Metinier. Uh, if if Debassi is anything like Roman Metinier, then this will be a fantastic move yeah. because uh, if I, <laughs> I think if you offered this team, if they, if somebody said, you know, hey, we can we can clone Roman Metinier but make him left footed and put him on the left side, you, you say yes to that right away. Absolutely. So if he can be the Roman Metinier of the left, that's fine. 
and obviously that that versatility to play two positions is great too because that's part of why like we talked about earlier Hassani Dotson so great because he can play eight six and right back right and maybe even left back so if Tabasi can come in and play left back or center back wherever they need him uh, that'll be good so again I think I, I would ex- personally expect him to play left back just because that's where I think the opening is um, but again you know he's a center back too so frankly I, I wouldn't bet on anything in MLS and, and I wouldn't really bet on where Debassi's going to play either, but uh, I'll, I'll settle with the, the left back take. Yeah. And when, when I'm, when I'm thinking about it in terms of just where this team needs depth and where they need another option, left back is to me, the first position that pops out is arguably mm-hmm. the thinnest on this team has, because who do you have behind Chase Gasper as a left back right now? Kirk, I think, right. Well, you, I think you have Noah Billingsley back there. Um, but obviously, you know, he, he's been quiet since joining the Loons. Um, I'm pretty much 100% certain that he's not in the bubble um, or hasn't been in the bubble, I guess. Now they're leaving it. Uh, and so, yeah, it, they, they need depth. And, and I would assume Debassi is a TAM-level signing, you know, comes in and starts there. But maybe he doesn't. Maybe it's just a battle between him and Gasper. Um, but, but again, certainly good. That's certainly a spot where you, you want someone else on that depth chart, whether they're starting or, or backing up Gasper. Yeah, and I was uh, I wrote a piece on uh, for zonecoverage.com on, on who's most affected by this signing, and, and Chase Gasper is obviously the person at the top yeah. of the list because while he had such a great year last year, earned himself a U.S. Men's National Team appearance, uh, you know, was arguably one of the best left backs in the league as a rookie. Uh, you know, he is he has not had that same level of play in this tournament. He played well mm-hmm. last night, but overall in this tournament and in the season so far, he hasn't really been too much of a factor. Like you said, his speed is an issue. As somebody who likes to come in and press up and provide support in the attack, he does lack the speed to track back and, and get back to defend counterattacks in that regard too, which is mm-hmm. also why we don't see much in the attack from Robin Lude because he needs to track back and sort of make up for that open space and potentially uh, you know, counter those counterattacks as well. Um, yeah. So having a guy like Debassi, who if he is like Roman Mettenaire, could really allow the left side to work almost symmetrical to how the right side operates right now. Because of you, as you've mentioned before, Eli, the right side and the left side of this formation operate almost polar oppositely. Oh, totally polar opposites. In terms of Metnair and Finley's, their, their ability to work together, uh, overlapping runs on the counterattack, Metnair's ability to get into the attacking third and really make a difference and provide solid goal scoring chances. Uh, if you can provide that on the left with a guy like Debassi, it could help bring more out of your starting left winger and Robin Lude as well. Um, so Absolutely. that's another reason why I think left back, if he is, you know, a, a similar Roman Metinair type as Adrian Heath has said, uh, could be his, could be his spot. But playing devil's advocate, I think when you're talking about him as potentially another center back and who can maybe slot in on the depth chart ahead of a guy like Coleman, um, you know, to have four guys of that caliber in Opara, Boxall, Aha, and Debassi, and being able to rotate those guys in and keep them fresh for, you know, the dog days. And in a, in a normal MLS season, in the dog days of July and August, you know, could also be a huge plus for this team as well. So I don't really think you can go wrong in terms of where you slot him in, but they are thinnest at left back and could really use another, another guy there right now. Well, and Jeremy, I won't dive into this take too much, but dare I say this might set up a three-back formation. Yeah, three center backs. You add another center back. You know, a guy like Tabassi who can play center back and left back. 
put him, slot him on the left side of that three center back formation. Yeah. It would almost be perfect, right? Exactly. But, but that's a take that, that I'll save for the Twitter feed. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, Eli Hoff, E Pluribus Lunum. Um, again, look for his update on the academy situation as there will be a Zoom call between Manny Lagos and uh, uh, former, current, potential academy parents uh, later on this evening if you're listening on Friday. So over the weekend, there will be more on that. Again, E Pluribus Lunum.com. Follow him on Twitter at by Eli Hoff. Eli, I always appreciate our conversations, man. We've been talking a lot lately. We've gotten a lot of face-to-face Zoom time lately. Yeah, so. I know. We we really have. And it's just, it's been, it's been part of what's been so fun about having this tournament back that all of a sudden we're just diving into Minnesota United again. We're breaking down, pressing in 4-4-3-3s and 4-2-3-1s and all that stuff. Uh, it, it's so great to have it back and obviously a pleasure to be chatting with you on the pod today. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, Eli. Thank you so much again. Have a great rest of your weekend, all right? All right, you too. Nice haircut. Thank you, thank you. Quite the cut. Yeah, quite the cut. Holy cow. I know. I like to break, like, I, don't, I let it get long just because, like, I got used to letting it get long in quarantine, yeah. but generally I like to keep it way shorter than I have it. Yeah, before. that's fair. That's fair. I used to do that all the time. I used to, like, get it, like, almost buzzed. Like, I get, like, the one, yeah. like, like, baseball season and stuff. And yeah. then I just would, like, let it grow out for, like, three months and then mm-hmm. do it all over again. No, yeah, that's I like I don't I just like it short. I don't like having a lot of hair to deal with. So yeah. same here, but I don't know. It's just like I don't have to go anywhere really. So No, and that's why like uh, yeah, this is this is my back to school haircut. Like I leave in a week and so I'm like, well, I should probably get my back to school haircut now. <laughs>